I, I forget who said this, but uh, it's show me the incentive and I'll show you the the outcome. Um, I, I think we've done a really good job incentivizing people to not focus on just the wins only. Um, and I think, you know, experimentation at assembly is critical to why we've gotten to where we've gotten so far. And we're going to continue to promote experimentation. And I think by promoting experimentation, you have to be comfortable with failure. Hello, and welcome to the Helping Organizations Thrive podcast. This is your host, Julian Roberts. This podcast is to provide leaders with insights, discussions, and robust strategies to help their companies thrive. We'll be interviewing business leaders, owners, experts, and thought leaders in the field of business resilience. Do enjoy the episode. Welcome to Helping Organizations Thrive. Uh, today, I have uh, Josh Purvis on the show. Uh, good morning, good afternoon to you, Josh. Good uh, good morning to you as well. Uh, and afternoon afternoon to you, right? <laughs> it is. We're I think about eight hours behind, or you're eight hours behind us, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, good to see you, Josh. Uh, so you're the, you're the co-founder and chief product officer at Assembly. Mm-hmm. And Assembly is a peer-to-peer employee recognition and engagement platform where co-workers can recognize each other with meaningful messages and rewards. And I had your uh, other co-founder, Jonathan Fields, on uh, about a year ago on the show. So it's good to have you on as well. And um, today we're going to be exploring curiosity and listening and how to solve problems, how to create healthy debates, arguments, I guess, conflict potentially, mm-hmm. in a healthy way that creates ideas and opportunities. Uh, and I'm sure you've been full of that and your business growth over the number of years you've been working at Assembly. Um, but before we get into that, uh, Josh, I- I'd first like to ask you, what do you love about what you do? Yeah, that's a really uh, loaded question. Uh, as a product manager, you do so many things, you wear so many hats. Um it's really tough to, I think, distill it down to one specific thing. But if I were forced to, um, I would say uh, just being obsessed about the problem that you're trying to solve for your customers and the value that you can create um, by being obsessed by that problem. Um, and not only that, like you get to work with a team of people. You know, this isn't an isolation role. This is a role where uh, typically as a PM, you're you're talking to literally every single department or person inside of an organization that is, you know, within some degree of relationship with you. So your first, second, third degree relationships, you're really talking to a lot of people. So um, you maximize, you know, collaboration in a very unique way of being a PM. Um, and I think that's probably what I love most about the role. Brilliant. So it sounds like you, you got very passionate about problems. You love problems. You like problems with your, that your clients and your customers give you. Um, how how well firstly how do assembly how assembly do you solve those problems i mean do you have process or you just go to task on them i'd be interested to understand how you go about it and perhaps give me an example of might be a recent problem if you can share it obviously yeah um i mean it's probably what we're it's probably what we're evolving into as a business um i find that problems are very deceiving um and that people tend to um, hide their real problems. Uh, and they you can dig most of the problem out by talking to the person, but sometimes you need to observe the behavior. I think there's this common um, idiom or ideology around what people say and what they do is very different. 
Um, and those two things are, are, are hard to reason whenever you're trying to come up with like what you're actually trying to solve. So you have to listen and talk to them, but you also need to observe their behaviors organically when they're not talking to you. Because oftentimes those two things are just different enough to where you can start to close the gap in what they're saying and what they're doing. Um, and so I think a lot of that is is what we're trying to to solve with assembly. And um, you know, you mentioned at the top of the show we're an employee and rec- employee recognition tool. We're so much more than that today. Since the last time you talked to Jonathan, uh, we've built an incredible amount of product, um, but in a very clever way. So uh, Jonathan leads our sales, and uh, he kept getting questions about you know what more could we do for our customers. Our tool was the most engaging tool that they had. Um, it was one of the better successes that HR had rolled out in their organizations, customer by customer. So we kept getting asked things like, can you run surveys? Can you do more constructive feedback instead of just the good stuff, the recognition pieces? Um, can you build forms? Can we uh, do manager one-on-ones with your tool? Uh, we kept getting asked more and more stuff. And it's really hard as a PM to get conviction on any one of these things because the second you build something, you lose effectively the optionality to build something else. And you have to keep focusing on making that tool that you just built better and better for your customer. So I held optionality for a really long time trying to understand like which piece of these things we should build next. Um, and it really is just a synthesis of making sure you're contis- consistently listening to your customers. And Jonathan's at the forefront of that. So it makes it really helpful and easy. Um, and then we have uh, our data and we can observe what people are actually doing. So we started running small tests here and there. And we got conviction on this concept of building a no-code tool rather than trying to build uh, one extra, uh, you know, vertical of our tool. So rather than going and saying, okay, you know, we're getting a lot of feedback requests, let's build feedback. We built flexibility into our tool so that we can actually observe what our customers are wanting from us more than anything. And what's really interesting about that is uh, as we've built this no-code tool, which allows a customer to come in and take a block, which is just an input of some sort, like a uh, an open-ended question or a scale block or a drop-down or whatever it is, and they can stack these things into a form to accomplish really any of their needs. We've discovered that there are hundreds of use cases that people care about, not just one, not just 10, not just you know <laughs> 20 or so. It's, it's much more than that. So uh, now we have one-on-ones being our top use case. Uh, we have everything from a daily agenda to team retrospectives running. Um, Lots of people do contests like uh, Halloween contests, which are really fun um, and keep the organizations engaged uh, all the way to, you know, one random person doing a Korean word a day, just trying to uh, basically learn a Korean word a day. Uh, And that's one of our longest standing running flows at the moment. So pretty incredible Mm -hmm. what you can learn by giving people the tools to just kind of create things. So so you almost, it seems like you've created a a model that allows not to be fixed in your problem solving and allows a little bit more of a flow, but also for the client and the customer to actually yep. solve it themselves. And it seems that rather than just being fixed and hearing your customers, but also, as you said at the start, when people share something, what their real problem is, is something else until they engage in something, they probably don't realize what their real problem is. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, how are you finding that when you're perhaps interacting with people in your team for example how do you decipher and get to the point or the, the sort of central point of what the problem really is when somebody's sharing with you a a challenge or a problem with something how do you personally get to that point where you go this is what the real problem is 
Yeah. I mean, I try my best with my team in particular, and I think with the organization. Um, and I think Jonathan and I practice, practice this, this publicly just enough to where I think it, it encourages it in the sort of, sort of atomic units as well, like my actual team itself, to where there's comfort in expressing counter opinions that, you know, uh, maybe uh, the, the employee may feel vulnerable to talk about because, you know, as a leader of the business and a co-founder of the business, I have this like weird, I guess, power in the organization. And uh, it's really hard, I think, for organizations to develop a culture where uh, the employees are comfortable uh, creating that conflict with a co-founder or someone in leadership roles. And I've done a really good job, I think, uh, maybe a pat on my <laughs> back for myself, but like my team feels very, very confident in countering me constantly. So, um, you know, I think it's really important to to support the vulnerability to support people going out on a limb. Um, and for me, it's it's uh, primarily around just like having those hard conversations and getting to the real answer and making sure that no one idea is overweighting any other idea just because of the person saying it. Yeah, and you made a I think a valid point where people. I've got to feel comfortable either to share new ideas or to perhaps challenge your thinking on something. And you've created that. What do you think you've done to try and create that sort of culture where when people call it psychological safety, don't they? Where people feel safe, they can challenge and they can try new things and it's okay if they fail and, <clears throat> and all that sort of stuff, new ideas. Um, so what do you think you've done? Has that been an intentional thing or is that just the way you've worked or what you observed in organizations you've worked in previously? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I, I forget who said this, but uh, it's show me the incentive and I'll show you the, the outcome. Um, I, I think we've done a really good job incentivizing people to not focus on just the wins only. Um, and I think, you know, experimentation at assembly is critical to why we've gotten to where we've gotten so far. And we're going to continue to promote experimentation. And I think by promoting experimentation, you have to be comfortable with failure. Um, you need more at bats with your customer because you're going to be wrong more than you're right. Um, and if you are uh, diminishing people's ability to experiment because you're uh, punishing, punishing them or making them feel bad about their losses, um, you're not going to have a culture of experimentation. You're not going to have a culture of curiosity. You're going to lose innovation and you're going to lead with fear. And I think that's how you ultimately lose. So a lot of a lot of the way we do this internally, and I think we've created a culture around this internally, is is like just rewarding people and even talking about it in our general channel. Like, you know, John and I will literally promote somebody in, in a channel for just failing at something. Um, and I think it's really important uh, to to bring that to the attention, right? It's like so that's calling out around. calling out the, all the losers, is it in the organization? Calling out losers. <laughs> <laughs> but doing it in a way that it's like we're proud of the effort and proud of like what they actually did to actually get to that point. Um, not necessarily <laughs> calling them out because they've lost at something, but calling no, them out sure. in a way it's like, hey, you know, I really respect the effort that went into figuring this answer out, despite the outcome being not a positive outcome, perhaps for the mm. business. Okay, so you're almost sort of publicly role modeling that actually it's okay to try things. We're rewarding your effort. We're rewarding you going for it. And actually, it doesn't matter if you didn't make it because actually innovation doesn't happen until you fail a number of times, isn't it, really? Yeah, correct. 
I mean, yeah. we it took us a long time to get to where we are. And uh, like I said, I mean, we don't we don't build a lot as soon as we possibly can. Uh, we get a lot of feedback. We get a lot of customer demand from like certain things. And we really hold optionality for a pretty long time. When we do build things, we sprint at it as fast as we possibly can. But that's because we've developed um, some sort of conviction around it over some period of time. Mm. Okay. And so you've obviously created this <clears throat> culture of experimentation and really sort of pushing the boundaries. How do you know that you're, you, you are really truly in that place? What else are you observing in terms of, you know, your organization, your people and the state of play, how you're grown as a business? Yeah. I mean, uh, we've hired some pretty uh, early on, we've hired some pretty junior people, um, mostly, uh, by necessity because we couldn't get the like most senior people to join us, uh, as we were a tiny little startup. Um, and those people have grown so far beyond some of the people, some of the best <laughs> people I've worked with, you know, in, in other companies. So I think, uh, the reason why I'm pretty confident that we are in a state of curiosity in a state of experimentation is the people in our business that we've hired have grown exponentially. And I've worked with some really great people at companies like Honey and PayPal and ZipRecruiter and other companies, phenomenal people. And I can't tell you enough, like some of the people that were uh, junior in our team are now, you know, beyond senior. Uh, they got a masterclass in building a company and uh, they're, they're like critical to the business. They're just absolutely critical mm. to the business. I couldn't imagine losing them. Fantastic. That's great. It's great when people come on that journey with you right at the start, isn't it? And, <laughs> and almost grow and actually help contribute to the, the success of the business. Uh, yeah. uh, it's always trying to keep hold of those, <clears throat> keeping all those people and keeping them interested and stirred and motivated and everything else. Um, so you've, you've built this sort of experimentation type culture, this sort of psychological safe people feel they can go for it. Um, when you go to think about ideas and, and your ideation sort of process and how do you go about that? I mean, is that, is that done in, in a separate session or is it on, on the fly? Is it through Slack channels? Is, is a, how do you create this sort of ongoing ideas that from the feedback you're getting from your clients and your customers and how we sort of meet their needs and solve their problems? How does that happen? Because, Sometimes a, a danger of a company that is into experimentation, and certainly when you have a startup and you're not a startup as, anymore as such, uh, is there's a plethora of ideas and it's just far too much. And you just can't, there's too many shiny things going on. I don't, I don't know, that probably feels quite comfortable with that. You like lots of shiny stuff, but actually how do we sort of manage the ideas and then bring it to an execution and that's what's, what we're going to run with? Yeah. Um, I mean, today it's a lot easier because now we're in a, I think, a better place product wise to understand uh, by observing our data, like what customers are doing and, and why they're doing it. And I think we've set, a, set ourselves up to kind of be able to uh, actually observe this where when we were just doing recognition, it was much harder. Like we did not know what to build next. Um, it took a lot of time, a lot of uh, conflict and arguments internally to really get to that point. Um, but now that we've shipped this tool, we have you know 200 different templates that solve different use cases that a customer can come in and adopt, and we just observe. Uh, you know, we're we're passive observers. It's more about discovering behaviors than it is about trying to necessarily create them. Mm -hmm. um, so it's more about going with the flow and just trying to to see where where people are pushing the boundaries of our own platform and our own tool. Uh, 
to deliver value into their own organizations. And by having access to that type of data, it really allows us to to not necessarily try to uh, you know be the the like master idea creators and mm. get as many hits as possible because we can kind of get pulled into those rather than being trying to push them onto our customers. Um, so we use a lot of observation and then we, we also hear the pains of our customers on like where things are failing. So like if someone tries to push the boundary of our, our tool and the template doesn't necessarily solve their needs completely the way they expected it to, mm-hmm. um, they're pretty vocal about it. So I think one thing that helps with that is, uh, we get feedback. So the, the observation piece and the feedback piece really play into, uh, how we, how we, uh, build towards that. So you're very much led by that uh, feedback and observation, which is you're not there just in a silo creating ideas, and actually you're you're almost observing your your clients and your customers interact with your platform, and actually start to think as some behaviours here we can tap into that and we can use that elsewhere, yeah. which is an interesting model, isn't it? In terms of and also having that ability to do that, isn't it? Compared to other companies don't probably have that opportunity because you've got this platform that you can observe behavior, which is yep. probably more impactful in terms of what they're really doing, what they really need is because you see it in, in, in a real life situation. Yeah. I mean, it's like anything else uh, in, in, in life, right? It's like you ask a question and you can find an answer. Whereas I think like a lot of companies get stuck in this, like, what do we do next? What do we do next? And then they have a team mm-hmm. of PMs that are trying to brainstorm ideas out of sort of the ether and out of nowhere. And I, I've been a part of these. I was a part of these at other various companies where you're you're just trying to like understand what you should build next, but the customers aren't really telling you anything because they just like your core product. Um, we have a benefit, you know, that we have templates and they can take our tool and 200 plus different directions. And uh, uh, we really get to observe that behavior completely. So um, as people start to do different things, and as people sort of uh, have tendencies towards certain templates, we know, oh, one on ones are extremely popular inside of assembly, we should probably reinforce that and build tools to support that use case in particular, to be better and better and better. So it's sort of obvious for us. on what we should do next versus uh, trying to make, make guesses and you know throw noodles at walls. So you're not like going off site every quarter thinking about the next big thing. You're just yeah. observing on the almost on on the go. That's like a constant stream of just watching what your clients are doing and see how we, we need to respond and act to that. How yeah. do you use it within your organization with the people you work with? How do you use conflict to create? or friction, I say, to create ideas or to get the best out of something to to really make something sort of stick uh, in the context of ideas? Yeah, um, I think there are lots of frameworks um, that help with conflict. And I think you always need um, a moderator to sort of help uh, make sure that or moderator facilitate these conversations that isn't going to um, enable these to get to like a place of personal attack. And they're more about attacking the problem. Um, but I think a really good framework is, is, uh, one called the five whys. There's a bunch of them, but, um, I, I appreciate the five whys quite a bit, uh, which is, you know, it's sort of poking fun at this, like, uh, uh, concept of just like, okay, I've asked a question. I've gotten an answer. And I think that's what we should do next. Well, then 
that's like not enough necessarily. Um, typically, whenever a customer tells you something or um, internally you hear something from an employee or you hear something in your life in particular, it's like the surface answer is not always necessarily the truth and you might have to dig deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, we hear things like this quite a bit inside of assembly. One of the things we're, we're trying to understand is like, how do we reposition our go to market now that we're not just a recognition tool? Um, because we'll hear things like, uh, um, we just had a conversation the other day in a meeting where, uh, we were, we were talking about like, how do we ask our customers why they're really buying our tool? Um, it's hard because we advertise a lot on recognition. And I think one of the, one of the ideas and the ways we were having this conversation is like really pushing the sales team to be like, okay, how do I ask better questions? How do I formulate a question that's actually going to get to the root cause of this? And it's tough because, you know, the person that might be on the other end of the call might not be the decision maker. They might be the person just Mm -hmm. shopping for a platform that the company's decided is the right thing to buy. Um, but my, my push towards uh, trying to figure out an answer is, okay, like they might come to you and they might say, we ran a survey and uh, uh, basically the result of that survey was we do, we're terrible at recognition internally. And so that's why we're buying you today. Well, that, you know, that answer that like they want a recognition tool, but it doesn't explain like why they think a recognition tool is going to be viable or useful mm-hmm. for their business. You know, that's not, a, that's not a business outcome. You don't buy a tool just for recognition's sake. Um, so the next you know, question is like, well, uh, what do you think that recognition is going to do for your business? What's the expected outcome that you're going to get by providing your your team with a recognition platform? Um, they might say something that's, again, somewhat surface level and kind of goes almost backwards, which is, well, we want our employees to be happier. Like, well, that's, that's obvious. <laughs> yeah, everyone wants <laughs> their employees to be happier. But why do you want your employees to be happier? What's the expected outcome of a happy workforce? Uh, well, it might be something like, well, our productivity is really low, so we want higher productivity because we believe that happier workforce is going to increase our productivity. It might be we have a retention problem and we're losing talent, mm-hmm. we're bleeding talent, and so we want to retain our talent. It might be, you know, um, uh, we want a, a culture of curiosity, right? It's like, and we don't have anyone like actually communicating or collaborating with one another, and so we're trying to like foster that sense of collaboration with one mm-hmm. another by building a connection and interdependency between people by providing a recognition tool. So you start to see where like our go-to-market as like purely a recognition tool is very bottom of funnel and only gets to uh, the people that have decided that, oh, recognition is going to give me these outcomes. But what I'm really curious about for myself and for our business when we go to market in this like, new world is what are they looking for down at the bo- the bottom, you know, like mm-hmm. what is the th- where's the where do they start? Where's this conversation starts? Like, what is the real problem in their business they're trying to solve with mm-hmm. recognition? Um, because business leaders, the, especially the people that are buying these tools or uh, are approving the purchase of these tools, like CFOs, you know, they have an expected outcome that they want. They don't just want to buy a recognition tool because HR ran a survey and they found that recognition was poor. Um, they want real business results. Yeah, and it's, it's it's getting to that the real problem is by asking that question, just digging and digging and digging to the point of what's the the motive behind it, what's the, what's the real driver, and that's what you've got to try and satisfy. Ultimately, your your tool may do it ultimately at the end, but actually knowing that can help you in, in terms of what product offering and how you go about implementing that and everything else. So that's yeah. that's really important. That's harder than it. That's almost it feels sometimes 
when you in that conversation you're, you're drilling people to points of um you keep pushing people all the way through until you get to the answer that you think you're there and in terms of what the the real issue is uh that's yeah. really important actually i mean and, what's, what, one one quick thing on this like what's sad is like curiosity has been compressed throughout our lives um and it's just an organic thing and i think it starts with schooling and a bunch of other things it's like mm -hmm. Um, Warren Berger, uh, a book he wrote uh, about basically the art of questioning. Um, he ran a survey or, or he had, you know, access to someone who ran a pretty large survey and he found that four-year-old girls on average, the average four-year-old girl asks 390 questions a day. And as she progresses through school, that mm. number radically declines because you're being incentivized to answer rather than to question. And so I think a lot of times, you know, Again, going back to vulnerability and all these other things, it's like if you have an incentive of get, <laughs> receiving an answer, you're going to get an answer. You're not going to get a question. And we're trained over our lives to constantly just provide answers rather than question things and think about things. So like as mm -hmm. kids, we're extremely curious beings. And as we get older, it's harder and harder to like have that vulnerability of, of curiosity. We almost need to unlearn it really, don't we? Because I think I agree with you. We've gone to a place where we have to then be able to say things to people and tell people things and inform them things uh, and and being curious uh, might be perceived and it's not it shouldn't be as oh you don't really know what you're doing because you're asking lots of questions but actually um, and I think this is probably starting to happen in certain sectors in, in education is the critical thinking and that critical thinking comes through by questioning and 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 challenging norms challenging well we've always done this well well can we not do it a different way and and it, and, it, and it's and i think we need i agree with you that sort of perhaps not having 300 questions a day but still up in our questions and i know having had sort of four daughters uh yes i do remember those <laughs> questions of well it's just, it's, well, it's just why dad why why yeah. why and uh, it drills you all the way to a point where you've got to really know why you're not supposed to do this thing and why yeah. it's bad for you because i've said it as a top line but actually why it really is bad for you because you've asked me four or five times why uh, and i think i agree with you i think we need to encourage and, and there is vulnerability because uh there's and also there's a challenge comes with it and, and obviously mm -hmm. why can be quite an aggressive question there's, there's ways of saying what or how to make it less aggressive but when you get curious i think you get some real interest and and also for the person you're asking the the what questions or why questions i think they learn as well a lot about it as in that context they understand a bit more about why they are asking that question themselves yeah um that's important yeah i mean we all get we all get more defensive whenever our ideas or our thoughts are being questioned and i think that's why you know you have to foster a culture of uh vulnerability to actually have curiosity in the culture and the acceptance of somebody asking that question, why, 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 five mm. times to get to a real answer in your business. Because otherwise, you know, you're stuck with these surface level answers that may or may not result in any success. Mm. What do you think the obstacles are in leadership for creating a, an environment of curiosity? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to be really really, really comfortable with failure. Um, and it, it's so cliche. It sounds like so obvious. <laughs> but I think it's the one that is uh, probably the most important is uh, you need 
more at bats with your customers because if you are doing 10 projects a year it's just not enough you know you have to be really really accurate in your ability to produce the correct thing every single time and if that's all you have time for well you're going to be wrong more than 50% of the time so mm. um if you want to i think if you want to be right you need to reduce the scope of things and you need to increase the speed at which you you experiment and most of those experiments are going to fail but if you can in- increase that rate uh, significantly and ship more to get quick answers that allow you to build upon that answer versus trying to say like i have conviction i'm going mm. to go and build this behemoth of a tool that's going to take us six months or a year mm. um and then it falls flat because you didn't do it right or you didn't find where the behavioral patterns are uh it's just going to be hard and you're going to you're going to ultimately fail and you're going to uh, not necessarily look great as a leader. And then you're going to end up blaming your team for doing all the wrong things because you asked them to go build this behemoth tool. I'd much rather see my team take small, tiny bets and do two to four week long projects max that get to a behavioral answer as soon as possible. And that could be changing a button that says, you know, uh, is an icon to a share. You know, as an example, it's like, I want to drive the pattern of, uh, can will somebody share this thing inside of our tool as an example how do we influence that behavior as much as possible and can we i don't know that mm. we can necessarily but we need to answer that question and how transparent should we be on our journey from creating that innovation that actually works i mean we all know that you know you know we need to fail more and everything else and we all say yeah, you're, you're doing it as a business so you're doing it but i often the challenge i put out there is I don't see a lot of transparency about the fade of it. All I see is that the very end we've got it and that's it. And oh, we failed along the way, but there's no transparency and how transparent should we be internally, but also externally? Um, externally harder to say, I think internally uh, it's pretty easy. I think it just goes back to the like rewarding the right thing and incentivizing the right thing. So if you keep your incentives aligned with um a culture of experimentation where people are constantly experimenting things and you're only promoting uh, or recognizing the wins, you're going to quickly turn that culture into not an experimentation culture. They're going to, everyone's going to index towards trying to find as many wins as possible, which means fewer risks, fewer chances and everything else. Mm. So it's more about making sure that you are being uh, (laughs) uh, radically transparent around the losses as well. And saying, we tried this thing, this is why it didn't work, and having a good explanation of, as to why those things didn't work, but also promoting them as well. Mm. So each loss you have, you need to promote just as equally as your wins. Uh, I think if you start incentivizing your wins too much, you lose that experimentation. Yeah, and, and, and it's using that where you failed or where things didn't quite go right is using that as an opportunity to learn, isn't it? And that's the, that's the frame on it all. And so how can we do this better next time? That's the idea. Yep. Um, I agree with you. I think we need to be more curious. We need to be more challenging in in, in getting to the real core of what the, the issue is, whether it's a one-to-one with somebody or with our other clients um, or customer. Um, thank you for your time today, uh, Josh. If people want to connect with you and get in touch with you, what's the best way of doing that? Yeah, LinkedIn is probably the best way of doing it. Um, also, my email, if anyone wants to email me, is josh at joinassembly.com. Brilliant. Well, thank you for your time today. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the time. 
Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. If you do like this episode, then please do rate, review, and share with your friends and colleagues. As a coaching practice, we coach high-performing leaders and teams with extreme ambitions. We'll help you to go beyond what you believe is possible. If this sounds like you, then let's have a conversation with me. Contact me at julianrobertsconsulting.com.